Hey, Freddie, how you doing? Good, good, good to see you, man. Yeah, you too. I didn't come with any structure or anything, right? Because I feel that I can have a conversation with you right off the right. top of my head, right? right? Like even what you just said, right? But you just said to me, I had a, a Zoom conference uh, yesterday, right? The way you and I are right now, what we're doing this maybe 30 years ago in a office in the Bronx is how mm -hmm. we met when I was a kid. Wow. wow. <laughs> in person, right? If you think about it, I was 14, maybe yeah. 14, 13, <laughs> and I'm 43 now. Mm -hmm. And and now we're having a conversation as mm -hmm. men, right? As adults yeah. still alive, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> oh, over Zoom. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it's amazing, man. Technology. It's it's crazy. The the tech and also the state of, of the world. Mm. You know? Mm. So so um that's that's rock and roll. <laughs> the city of New York, Boricua from the Bronx. We are NYC talking. The realest lifestyle blog ever. Hey, hey, what's up guys? This is uh, Angel Rodriguez for not just NYC talking. Um, today I am talking to, I think in my life, I'm actually nervous. This is crazy. I'm a little nervous because in my life, there are three people, right? Aside from my mother that I credit with helping steer and save my life, right? When I was younger, um, this gentleman that you see before you is one of those three. His name is Freddie Baez. In that group of three, you came in number two. In mm -hmm. terms of the the time timeline, I, I believe number two, one or two, because one of them was a gangbanger, who um, who slapped the crap out of me when he saw me hanging out with the gangs and performing, uh, let's say, less than savory acts <laughs> with with the gang. He didn't want me to be with them. He knew my mom. He mm -hmm. knew um, he knew that I had potential, and he grabbed me and threatened me and slapped me up and forced me to get away. Mm. Um, but the other person was a person who, who didn't let me start working. And so after I dropped out of high school, I went into this, um, this program, um, like a youth employment program. And they wanted me to go take this job. And the director of that employment program said, no, Angel cannot have that job. I wanted to start working, right? I'm thinking it's the right thing. I excelled. I, I want to make money. She said, nope you're going to go to Monroe college and mm. you're going to look at this 24 credit GED program. And she would not let me take the job. She, she said, don't put angel up for any jobs. So she forced me to go to the college, which I did. And that changed the direction of my life. And of course there's yourself. When um, my mom walked into the room, I had a knife. I was playing with it on my hand. Mm. You know, I, I don't recall having any intentions of slashing myself, right? Um, or hurting myself. But my mom walked in, I had this big, big Rambo knife. And she saw me like kind of going like this, you know, like right on the wrist, going like this. Going. Mm -hmm. And that's when, you know, I started seeing you. <laughs> so Freddie, why don't you tell us about yourself, who you are, what you do, and how you come across some 14 year old in the South Bronx who's looking to kill himself because he's so upset with the world. How, 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 how did, how does, how do you become 
<laughs> Who are you? Yeah. How do you become? <laughs> well, that's a good journey. I mean, uh, currently I am, uh, I've been an adjunct professor at Niagara College for about 20 years, part-time. And at the college, I was teaching graduate level counseling courses. So people who are studying to be uh, counselors or therapists, mental health uh, counselors. And then I started doing that in 1997, part-time. A friend of mine was a dean at the school, and we had taught 15 years earlier. Um, so this is 97, so I'm thinking I met him in the 80s. And we were teaching in the Bronx, a local church had a Bible institute. And so him and I got to know there, and we got to be good friends. And then um, after a while, he left to go to Florida, we lost contact. I'm going to say for almost 10 years. So next thing you know, I'm getting a phone call from him, um, 1996. He's part of Nyack College. His mission was to start up Nyack College in the city again. Uh, apparently in 19, the 1900s, uh, Nyack College goes to Nyack, New York. And so they leave the city and now they want to come back in the city anyway. He, he remembered me, he asked me, would you be interested in teaching a college courses, blah, blah, blah. He said, you know, I like your flow, I like the way you teach. I said, wow, that's a great honor, yes. So basically teaching uh, for the seminary, and seminary is basically a graduate school for people who are studying to be ministers and pastors. Mm -hmm. And so I was teaching since I had a master's in social work degree. Um, I started teaching uh, basically these future leaders or pastors um, to be mindful of that when people in their church need mental health, how to go about doing it. So those are psychology and theology was the course that I taught, which are my passions. And um, in the course of that, uh, Nyack eventually starts the School of Counseling. So now they have the seminary, graduate school for people in the ministry, and now they want to start a mental health graduate program. So then I started teaching between the two different um, graduate programs. And then I'm doing this part-time. Meantime, I'm working full-time uh, doing mental health in various institutions. Um, in 2008, I become an ordained minister, so now I'm reverend. Um, and I do a lot of stuff in churches and teaching and doing marriages and stuff like that that ministers do. Um, so that's always been my passion, mental health and, and spiritual and, and religion. Those two have always been passions for me. And um, so currently, after being um, at Montefiore Hospital for about 20 years, 2013, I left. And so basically, I'm working part-time. I'm working in one institution called Full Circle Health, which is located on Williamsbridge Road around Pelham Parkway area. And I just work there two days a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I'm the director of internship and pastoral care. So we get a lot of people who are religious, spiritual, somewhat suspicious of secular therapists. Because, you know, once you start saying God spoke to you, okay, Bellevue, here we come. So so they want to be, they want to go someplace where they feel they're not going to be judged. So anyway, I'm two days a week there. And then I work two days a week at an uh a clinic called New York Psychotherapy Center, close to 149th Street. It's actually 151st Street in Cortland. I work there Thursday, Friday, where I'm also a mental health provider and a supervisor. 
And actually, New York Psychotherapy Center is, the, I think, the largest provider of mental health um, in New York State. So they're like, like the largest institution. I mean, I think we have at least over about 100 therapists. And I think we have a census of about four or 5,000 patients. So they open have seven you, days a week. Have you noticed an uptick since uh, this whole situation happened in terms of uh, patients and problems? Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I definitely have. Um, you know, it's hard to believe that this is something that's worldwide, right? It's a pandemic. Right. Uh, unlike an epidemic, which is kind of close, this is a pandemic. And so this, you know, in the beginning when this thing happened and people were like hunkering down March and April and May, it almost felt like you were in some kind of zombie apocalypse movie. You know, the whole world yeah. is being <laughs> impacted. And a lot of people... Uh, a lot of fear, and I thank God they, that uh, New York State and I think other states changed the law or made accommodations to the law as far as providing mental health that you could do it to a, a phone call. And now I now I believe they're working on video that you can actually do video sessions, or you can oh, have because uh, the the sensitivity of it and well, that, some that... people yeah exactly the the fear that this is in the airwaves and somebody could, right. you know, hack into it and confidentiality. But now there's an option of texting, uh, phone calls, or video. So whatever way the patient feels comfortable, the law um, is, is being accommodated that people are not physically comfortable going to a clinic and sitting down and being exposed to who knows what. Right. So um, from day one when this thing happened, I basically kept going to work. Yeah, I wore my mask. 90% of our patients did not come to the clinic. So 90% of the time we were making phone calls. I'm noticing now, uh, now that we're in August, we still have maybe 75% of the people still want, you know, phone call, video, but you have 25% that actually want to come out. Like for them, coming to the clinic or a center is an outing. They put their mask, they get on the bus, hold their breath, whatever way they get here, they, it forces them to leave the home, and now they're face-to-face. -face. So, you know, we move the seats six feet back, and we have the session, um, which is about a half hour on average. So at least they feel they're leaving the home. They're actually talking to someone face-to-face. -face. So you do have people that want that, you know. Uh, sense of normalcy. Mm -hmm. um, I guess for some people, this works. Like people who, who are shy or, or don't like to be around people, um, this whole living this way to them is normal. I've done fine. Um, besides gaining like 25 pounds, you know, because, you know, like, like I've, I've lost the gyms, you know, I teach at the gyms and it was one of the ways that I kept myself accountable. I have to go teach you. So how can I let myself go? It yeah. was a form of accountability, losing the gyms, I guess the, um, the, wow, you hear that outside? Yeah. <laughs> it is intense out there. So I lost, you know, that accountability that I had. And I've, I've backtracked and I'm trying to correct that, you know. Uh, recently got vertigo, which really wasn't fun. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That really, that really set everything, you know. I was just finding my way back, too. You know, I, my, my son and I had been running. 
this is his design, by the way. He he draws. Oh, wow. <laughs> he he made like a shirt. Yeah, little magic magic porky pig. Uh, <laughs> nice. So we've we've been running and I've been finding my way back in terms of my eating and my training and I was making progress. Then one day I woke up and everything was spinning. Mm. Everything was spinning and I thought I was having a stroke. I was like, oh wow. man, I'm a, you know, mm. I'm, I, yeah, I'm going to die. All, all this internal rage that I've been keeping inside has finally caught up to me. And I thought I blew a brain vessel, but uh, now it turns out it's just, uh, it's just vertical somehow. I don't even know. Like they can't even tell me where it's coming from. Mm. Um, but you know what? Yesterday was the first day that I didn't, feel any spinning at all throughout the mm. day mm. so i'm hoping that i'm i'm healing from that because man that that was not fun yeah. i don't know if you've ever experienced uh I think that, the closest that. i ever came to that was i um i went a trip on a sailing ship in the caribbean and uh you just have to pay the effort anyway i'm on this ship called the polynesia and it's like three mass huge ship so you're kind of roughing it you know, it's the first time I ever did any kind of ocean voyage. Oh. So most of the passengers were people with money, middle class, upper class people. People, I remember hanging out with one guy, every time we used to stop at an island, he would say, that's one of my t-shirts. Like he had a t-shirt company. That oh. So, you know, so these people had money. I'm like a, a schmo in the South Bronx. And I'm only here because I won this trip. And people kept saying, oh, so what kind of business are you in? Yeah, I worked for the Parks Department in New York at the time. But anyway, a whole week of rocking on the, wow. on the boat, right? So when I get back to New York for about a whole month, I closed my eyes and I could feel the rocking. But I mean, for me, it was actually a good, I mean, it wasn't a negative experience because whenever I go to sleep, I just think I was on the boat. I, 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 I would go with it. But yeah. I, I do have to admit a couple of times walking that whenever I made a turn, I would smash into a wall. So that was part of that, you know. So wow. That, that's the closest. That, that guy only lasted a month and that was it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. This is, it's crazy. It's bizarre. And, and they research how it works and that there's these little crystals that are in the ear. And if they get out of the ear canal, it, I'm like, man, you know, I've trained Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I've been thrown through the air. I've been kicked in the head, punched in the face, um, stomped in the head, and I never had any problems with those crystals. One day I'm in bed reading a book, and the crystals go. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's the craziest thing. Like, I have never, I've never experienced that. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, naturally, if you've never had a feeling like that, you think something terrible is happening. Yeah. Went to the ER, went to ENT went to a neurologist, had wow. MRIs, and they're okay. It's probably, uh, you know, just vertigo. They couldn't, they couldn't really tell you why, how it got started. No, and and they couldn't tell me definitively what exactly is the cause. It's kind of like if you get a migraine, right? Um, they do an uh, MRI of your brain if it's really bad and, you know, over the years of um, – for me, this was killing two birds with one stone because I've had migraines for a long time. And um, all my research has indicated that you just have them. There's no, you can't find the cause, no one can. So I've never done the MRI, right, for the migraines. But when the spinning came on, I thought to myself, damn, you know, like this could be really bad. I better really look into this. So 
they did the MRI. So it answered two questions. One, that the spinning was not because of, uh, you know, some really horrible situation. It's, it's called uh, uh, BP benign, BPBB, some, it, it has the word benign in it. So you're not going to die from it, right? But it also answered the question that the migraines are not being caused by some horrible yeah, tumor you know, or something. Correct, correct. So um, I, I, I got that, but they couldn't give me a, a, you know, like a definitive answer. Okay, here's the problem. Here's what you do. You know, you need to go to therapy. Mm. You go to therapy and, you know, get those crystals back in. I'm like, oh, so you know for sure it's the crystals. You saw them in the MRI. No. Oh, so you don't know that it's the crystals? No, but it's the crystals. But I thought the MRI was going to give us that answer that they'd be able to see. And uh, the doctor's like, no, we can't see that. We could just check your brain. Your brain's fine. It's the crystals. Mm. Okay, if you say so. I mean, you know, yeah, but that, that doctor was a whole other story. There's a madhouse in there. I'd, I would never go back there. Let's just say that. <laughs> they won't get a call from me in 30 years thanking them. <laughs> yeah, no, they're not getting anything. Those guys were uh, they're probably the most unprofessional people that I've dealt with. You would think that these people care about their business, their business, their they're being paid by our insurance. They're being paid by us. You would expect a higher level of professionalism, especially when you think your brain is exploding. You yeah. kind of want a little tender touch. I think so, yeah. But believe it. Do you remember at all? Like, I mean, it's been a long time, but do you remember anything about me from that time frame? Uh, I'm going to tell you, I, I can't say I remember individual sessions per se. I think... The overall impression is that, you know, I had this kid in front of me, angry. Um, I think what kind of impressed me was the fact you had a notebook and huh. that you would write some stuff, uh, you know, write some um, some flow, some rhyme, and then you would share it with me, you know, some of your poetry, some of your thoughts. So I said to myself, you know, when you left and I would you come to session, I said to myself, there's something different about, about him because the average, I guess, teenager that came to see me, you know, okay, a lot of anger, rage, drugs, not happy, you know, single parent home, uh, uh, the streets, calling the streets, you know, schools not doing what they need to do. So, but I wasn't used to having a, a young person come in the room with a notebook and showing me their work. So you would, you would write down some thoughts or poetry um, music, you know, some of your lyrics, and you were sharing with me, and I figured, okay, let's work with that. You know, right. let's 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 use that. You know, I didn't tell you that in so many words, but that um, my strategy with you was, well, this is something that he's passionate, and it's really a form of therapy for him to sit down with his feelings and to put them down on paper. There's something to this day, right? Uh, to this day, I, I, I still have a notebook, you know, one, periodically I'll get a pencil hmm. and I'll get some paper. And there's something about using a pencil and hearing the sound of the pencil and the paper and writing down your thoughts. There's something about the energy of your thought being transferred to this pencil 
and then being manifest on a piece of paper that for me is almost hypnotic. It, it, it's almost like a Zen kind of thing, right? So to this day, I still do it. Uh, you know, I'll get a pencil. I don't want to type it. I don't want to text it. You know, sometimes I'll get into that mood and I'll get a pencil and just write. Something mm -hmm. soothing about it. There's a rhythm. There's a rhyme. And so when somebody's a poet by nature, you know, whatever the medium is, it, it's your thoughts or energy that are being transferred into that paper or, or whatever the medium is. So there's an energy transfer. So when someone sees a piece of art and they're moved, that energy is being transferred to them. You know, so um, I found that fascinating that you would write. And I said, okay, let's go with this. And so I would, you would every week come and share things with me and the writings and everything. And with that, I think you started opening up and then, you know, sharing some things. And, you know, I, I think at that point, my attitude was, you know, I think, you know, I, I, I th instead of being the therapist, I decided to be the mentor. And I think that one of the things I tell when I supervise people in training, I tell them, you know, eventually you want to imagine yourself as a therapist as someone who has a toolbox. And depending on the job, you take the right tool. And I right. say, you know, as you develop in your career, there's times when you need to be the therapist. There are times when you need to be the big brother. There are times when you need to be the father image. Mm -hmm. uh, there are times when you need to be the philosopher or the priest, hear confession. So I think, you know, the, the, the need of the person is going to determine my response. You know, right. and there's this old teaching... Uh, I'm not sure where it comes from originally, but, you know, the, the, the teacher will come when the student is ready. And I'm a person, I'm a religious, spiritual person. I believe that every time somebody comes in my office, it's a, it's a divine appointment. And so my job is to, I have a pilgrim in front of me. They're on a journey. They might be lost. So my job is to walk with you in your journey for a season. And my assignment is to equip you as much as I can with what I can. And when my job is done with you, the universe will bring you to another place and there'll be other teachers. There'll be other mentors. And then you continue on your journey, right? So I'm on a journey and I have people who come in my life to speak to me, to encourage me, to strengthen me, as I in turn strengthen others. So it's a constant giving and receiving. Yeah, so for me, that's the way I kind of eventually, and I'm going to say I've been doing, I graduated in 1989 from Fordham University. So I'm in my 31st year. And I, it doesn't mean that I haven't met patients that I, that I would dread it. Uh, it didn't mean I didn't have patients when I was like, oh, no, this guy's outside of her. Or I didn't have days when I felt like, I mean, I'm quitting this place. The caseload is too high. But I'm going to say that for the most part, I, I enjoy what I do. And I'm going to be um, 68 this year. Oh. And um, it's the water, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. so I'm, going to be, I'm going to be 68 this year, and I don't see myself retiring. And, it's, you know, I have the type of job. I'm in the office. I'm not digging ditches. Right. You know, I'm not doing physical labor for eight hours, right? I know what it is. I, I've done that kind of work. 
Right. Well, I'm in the office, I'm sitting down, I'm on the phone, I could text now, I could video. Uh, half of the time I work from my house. So yeah, technically yeah. I could be at a beach having a session with you, right? This is even better. So, um, so for me, I think as long as my mind is sharp, mm -hmm. I can easily do this 75, 76, 77. So I don't have a problem, you know, age is a number. As long as I'm functioning and I can, and I feel I'm making a, a difference in the life of people. So I'm going to say in the last five years, I've adopted more um, of a mentoring posture and more of a life coach posture. Um, I'm always saying that you're evolving as a person, so you're evolving as a therapist. I'm much more eclectic now. You know, I realize I can't make anyone change. I realize that there are people who come who complain. There are people who come who are ready for change. So sometimes I'm assessing, do I have a changer or a complainer? If I have a complainer, I'm not going to put that much energy because every week, no matter what I say, you're going to stick to your position that you're the victim. Victims don't change anything. However, if you're a survivor, if you're an overcomer, you can do something with that. So one of the things I do is I assess to have somebody who's complaining. And at one time, how do you tell the difference between the two? And are you ever afraid that maybe you you could have miscalculated that? Does that ever um, is that ever something you think or you kind of no, no, like? No, that's a that's an honest question. So I'm going to say that if, the way I work with people is I say. Every 12 sessions, we're going to review to see if this is working. Mm. And I tell people that 12 sessions is really three months, you know, once a week, half hour. So 12 sessions is about three months. Now, the truth is, depending on your issue, you know, three months, for the most part, is not enough time to heal you. Right. Um, but then what I'm going to say is that within those three months, there should be a greater sense of hope in you that this, that I can see light at the end of the tongue. I, I can honestly believe that suicide is no longer an option. And might, there might be a reason for me to be here. That should be happening. A greater sense of hope, uh, a greater sense that something can happen, right? So that's that hope. That's that optimism. If you're in the right place with the right therapist, that should be happening. Now, you still got your issues. You still have your dysfunction, but there's a greater sense of hope. Now, if the three months come and you're still like in day one, something's not working. So I have to examine myself as a clinician. Hmm. And I have to say, is my approach, I need to adjust my approach? Or can I be honest with myself and say, this, the problem that you have is beyond my skill set? A lot of times when we see a, a doctor, the doctor is not a specialist in a particular thing, right? So usually most general practitioners, that's why they send you to the oncologist. That's why they send you, right? So they send you to the specialties because the specialties have specialized. So I work a lot with trauma. I work a lot with uh, low self-esteem and things like that. But there's times when I might see someone and I said to myself, the verbal therapy is not enough. They need medication as, as an adjunct, right? So 
the medication, you coming to see me, me assigning a book for you to read, me asking you to join a, a self-help group. So it takes a village, right? So it takes a village to raise a child. So sometimes when people see me, once a week, a half hour, that's not cutting it. So we got to think of a, a, a plan of care, right? right? Of, of building a community of care around you, including therapy and your journey. So the difference between a complainer and a changer, by the time you get to the 12th session, the changer is taking the advice you're giving, they're proactive, and the reality is they came to see you. They, they're the ones who made the appointment. I'm not knocking on door, hi, do you need therapy? You know, that's not happening, right? So, so that's the changer. By the time you get to the 12th session, you see change, right? I ask people to bring a notebook, I give homework assignments. I might give them a YouTube video to see. Uh, the notebook is a two-way instrument. It's for you to say, wow, you know, let me write this down and, and I don't want to forget it to bring it up to Freddie. We take a look at dreams, you know, so I'm willing to look at dreams that you have at night. If it's a common theme, let's look at it. Now, the complainer, no matter how many times you ask them to do something, it's never enough. It's always somebody's the reason why they couldn't do the assignment. Right. The, the attitude is, oh, what's, what's the point? This will never work. So the complainer complains, and the complainer says, the power of, my, of me growing as a person, my healing, is not in my hands. It, it, it belongs to other people. And as long as you believe that your healing is dependent on other people, that you're, you're going to be stuck. You're going to complain. Because your, deep, your philosophy really is, this change that I have to make is a lot easier if my husband stopped drinking, if my son only listened to me, if my daughter wouldn't be, uh, every time I called her up to ask how she's doing, she wouldn't fight with me over the phone. So, so my peace, my happiness is dependent on other people. Meanwhile, you have Gandhi, who was beaten, put in jail. You have Martin Luther King Jr., same thing. So when you look at heroes, their peace of mind is not dependent on, on the powers. What makes them a hero is that in spite of the outside pressure, they maintain their dignity. They maintain their peace because of their disciplines, whether it's praying, reading Holy Scripture, whatever they did, that those disciplines fortified themselves so that when the powers came against them, you know, yeah, there, there's a teaching, a tradition that says, <clears throat> when I see injustice, speak against it. But if I can't speak against it, try to change it. But if I even can't change it and I can't speak against it, at the very least in my heart, I'm still fighting it. And that's a tradition that comes from Islam, a hadith that's ascribed mm -hmm. to the Prophet Muhammad. So th this idea that I'm responsible for my happiness is something that we want to help people realize. That, you know, and, and when, even with complainers, I make them realize, you found this office. You're the one who made the appointment. You're the one who came to the intake. You're coming. You're, you're like halfway there. Right. Let's figure out what's, let's figure out what's, What's blocking you? What's the barriers to complete the journey? It's heavy stuff, man. 
So you've been doing this. 1989. Do I remember correctly? You, you're, you're from New York, right? Uh, historically. I grew, up, I grew up in Spanish Harlem at Barrio. And um, in this uh, 1952 born, so in the 50s, 60s, in East Harlem, you still had the Italian section on Pleasant Avenue. So whenever I would see West Side Story, I can identify with that. There were certain parts in East Harlem you couldn't walk because the oh. Italians were, if you were a kid. So if you oh. were like a kid, a teenager, 20-something, there was still some beef with the Italians and Puerto Ricans. And right. I remember that there was a girl in my building. I, was, I must have been like about 10, 11 years old. I had a crush on her, right? She was about 17, 18, beautiful Latina girl. She looked okay. white. Right, she could pass for white, you know. So white skin, blonde hair, not dyed, blonde hair, and she actually fell in love with this Italian kid. That both of them must met in high school, forbidden love. Wow. So when they get married, they move out to Long Island. She could pass for white. She has a white last name now. Mm -hmm. And once in a while, she would visit mom in El Barrio with her kids, who could pass for white. <laughs> So I, I kind of like, I got that, I understood it, but then obviously, you know, the 60s roll on, most of the Italians begin to move out. And then you have Vietnam War going on. So then I started in high school becoming politically aware. I, you know, it's, it's very interesting to, if you ask an, uh, a kid in the ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th or 12th about politics, now they'll tell you they want to be an artist, a, a basketball player, you know, uh, they'll tell you about who, what the latest is happening in fashion, you know, uh, who's rocking their world, but politics. But when I was a kid in the ninth and 10th grade, that's what was going on. Like you could talk about Marx, you could talk about, about um, you know, uh, our people being oppressed and that's what was going on. Ninth and 10th, 11th grade, yeah, you had the kids still hanging out with the parties and all that business. But the group I hung out with, we would read you know, books on Marx and Lenin and philosophers. I, I had, I, there was a guy in the ninth grade reading um, Lord of the Rings from a book. Remember the books? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so oh, he, yeah. Be, he had this big book and he's always like, this is his world. He's like talking to me about Frodo and I'm like, dude, get past me a joint, you know, forget about that crap. So, so big contrast when I see me as a kid uh, wanting to bring change, uh, Black Panthers, young lords, you know, co uh, coming against the war. And I see kids now. So when I see the Black Lives Matter, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the protests that I, I was involved with as a teenager um, against the war. And I remember blocking off Fordham Road because they had a recruiting station. I think they still do. Yeah, I, I've but been we there. Had, yeah, we had <laughs> Lehman College. NYU that was in the Bronx still at that time. Uh, a couple of community college, a couple of high schools closed on a Friday organized and we actually met on Fordham Road and shut it down. And people were sitting down to not have kids recruit. So, and then the cops came, broke it up. So I remember a lot of change, a lot of social turmoil, a lot of excitement. Very similar to today. Different yeah, no, reasons. No, no, I have, I have, yeah, except that you don't have this pandemic stuff going on, you know, so, mm. but I remember, uh, I mean, definitely, I, I, you know, sometimes we think we're something until the pressure comes and that, that reveals the truth, right? So if you got a, 
a Gucci product or a name brand product, and then it kind of wears down in normal wear and tear, you, you question the quality, or you begin to question that I get a fake or the real. So prior to the pandemic, uh, at least in the circles I run, which is religious, spiritual, people have a, an image. You know, they're people of faith. They're strong, right? When this pandemic hit, it just revealed what's really there, right? And, and I would do these conferences and look at people like panicky and scared. Um, and my basically my, my mission in these, in these conferences, I've done like about 18 already, um, is to help people think. So in other words, I can't change your circumstance. But if I could change your vision about your circumstance, then you begin to approach this not so much as a problem, but an opportunity. And perspective is is crucial. That's there you go. Exactly. Yeah. Perspective is so important. I it's helped me a lot. I've come a very long way from when I was a child, but all that stuff that happened to me back then, all those experiences, they affect you into adulthood. You know, I still yeah. have have uh have dreams about getting jumped and yeah. and assaulted and you know i i constantly have dreams about you know being attacked um getting shot at you know like these things stay with you you know mm. um the the difference is that i've i've gained perspective yeah you know a, a lot of the times with something and that was one of the things i gained from the military um the military i i didn't really have a very uh career enhancing experience in the military, but I did have some life lessons that, you know, basically about understanding circumstances, you know, while I was going through boot camp, before I went in, um, at the time I was married and we had a miscarriage, um, you know, so we lost the, the child and that happened like a couple of weeks before I shipped out. Wow. So my head was already you know, remember, you're dealing with a kid who at 14 was very, you know, so I'm now in, you know, like 19 years old and not much older and going through that and in boot camp. And, you know, uh, during basic training, they saw things where they were like concerned and uh, they sent me to like the mental health. Well, it's the Air Force, so it's called a flight, but most people wouldn't recognize terms like squad or platoon. So like they sent me to the mental health platoon to prepare to get me out of there, oh. you know, because there was like, you know, this guy's something's not right. And they thought I might, you know, I'd be an issue. And right. you'll I realized press you'll press the button to start the war. <laughs> yeah. I was, you know, I was a, a potential, you know, for, for them, you know, it's very practical, you know, you're a liability, you're going to be an expense, you know, you're going to be a problem. So they were considering getting me out of there. And when they sent me over to this, mental health platoon, I was going to be there longer than it would have taken me to complete basic training. And while I was over there, I realized that, you know, I don't like this. I don't like where I'm at. I don't like what I'm going through. But if I just suck it up, I just suck it up. I accept this is my circumstance, mm -hmm. right? This is where I'm at. There is nothing I can do. I cannot change this. Right. I can cry, which is one of the things I did in there. I could cry. I could tell them I'm going to hurt myself, whatever. I can't get out of this. These are all things I did. Right. I figured 
they're going to kick me out. Right. But what happened was I ended up in a worse situation. Right. And at that point, something in my head clicked and I accepted the circumstance that I was in. I accepted that I can either do this the right way or I can be over there with dumb dudes who are trying to get out and gain nothing from this experience. I will actually gain nothing. In fact, it might hurt me that I went through basic and got some sort of mental health discharge. It would hurt me as a professional. So I just clicked. I sucked it up. And that was like the second, second and a half weekend um, out of uh, like six, seven weeks. From that point on, boot camp became fun for me. Mm. I actually enjoyed it. And I didn't even want it to end. I became so tied up in the structure of it. I became like a robot and I excelled, you know, um, I did really well once I changed my outlook. There you go. So there you go. So I see this is your experience is perfect, right? Complainer. Hmm. Right. Complainer. Exactly. True. The, the True. Complainer is a victim. The outside world, you know, is, is affecting me. Um, I'm succumbing to this, but a changer is somebody who says here's an opportunity you know, my way doesn't work. I need to consider something different. So you're a perfect example of what I'm talking about. When somebody comes in the office, I got somebody who's locked up in that mental health squad. Right. right? And my job is, can I help them realize, you know, as bad as boot camp looks, life, I can help. If you can adjust, I want to help you consider that maybe let's take advantage of boot camp and make something, right? But as long as you're like, no, 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 then you're in this mental health squad, right? But so one, but here we go again. Change is something that happens internally. You're the one. So what a mental health counselor does is help facilitate. Basically, I'm the guy who's buying the groceries, but you're the one who's going to make the cake. I got, I got everything set for you. You know what? You know what's missing? You don't have eggs. Mm in your recipe when i look at your recipe yeah the bread sucks <laughs> yeah nobody wants to eat this cake you know what? you need eggs you need so i'm gonna give you everything but you're the one who has to mix it I, i'm over your shoulder saying a little bit more salt i think it tastes it oh. right, put it in the oven now you gotta wait so what are you gonna do when you wait so that's the, the other way to think about this is cooking the other way to think about this is baking right so for me mental health there's a lot of different paradigms but your experience is, is a great example of the complainer and the changer. Right. Uh, I, I, it just clicked. I realized that uh, I was stuck there. Well, th- to tie that into life, it, it just gave me the understanding of acceptance that, you know what, mm-hmm. I don't like this thing. I don't want to do it. But I, the quicker I get it done, the quicker I can move on. Yeah. Yeah. So I take that. that that's the one thing that I feel like gained from my experience in basic. Um, you know, um, they put me in a field that I didn't care for as far as a career. You know, like there was nothing that enhanced me professionally. Yeah, yeah. Other than, you know, I have it on my resume, whatever, but it's not something I use at all in my work or my life, right? Um, the skills that they gave me as far as work is concerned. Mm-hmm. But that one takeaway was life-changing. Yeah. That one takeaway, because now I find myself in situations often, be it at work, 
you know, be it in the street, be it whatever the circumstance may be in life where I'm dealing with a person or conversation. And I just kind of, now I understand, you know, it is what it is. I cannot change this. So why am I going to complain about it? Just get it done. Yeah. Get I'm looking, done. I'm looking at the time. So we got to finish. Cause I was a session. I to believe that 45 minutes went this fast. Like, time flies. <laughs> wow. But, yeah, but, but it has been a great pleasure talking yeah. to you. We've been, I've been trying to get you on here for, for ages, you know, and, you know, yeah. busy guy, high demand. Yeah. You know? yeah. So I really appreciate you coming on. I appreciate, you know, uh, sitting with you when I was a child and reading the poetry that gave you my mindset and helped, yeah. you know, helped shape who I am. So I am, I am grateful for that. I, yeah, I, I, I hope that's I, evident. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. And I, you know, I remember what I think it was over 10 years ago when you reached out, you know, I remember getting a message um, uh, coming to my office at Montefiore. Hey, somebody named Angel um, and you left a message. I think it was, or I, I remember um, you did some kind of search on the internet and you actually found the office I worked in. And I remember when we spoke on the phone and I, when I hung up with you, I was like, shaking a little bit like oh my god you know it's so good to hear uh because a lot of times in this line of work you don't really you know you're on you're working with someone for a, a part of their life and some people never come back you never get feedback so i felt really i felt really good i felt like validated that you know whatever i did really made a difference and um so you know old school i'm gonna say simply this i'm very proud of you and you. the man that you've become and the fact that you are in a place where you, you really want to help people make a difference. And I think, um, I think as a human being in general, we want to help people, but in more particular as a Hispanic man to another Hispanic man, I think it's a great thing. And we need, we need to really encourage our young people, young people of color, that you know, we're, we're the greatest victimizers of ourselves you know, black and black violence, Latino, Latino violence among ourselves, our own community. And when you see other minority groups that have been successful, it's, it's because they've learned that it's us against the world and we can't be fighting internally. And I don't want to get into particular groups to study, but you know, you use common sense and take a look right. at minority groups in different countries and different parts of the world who have excelled and what you're going to see is they work together. And number two, education is the key. And number three, understanding the value of money and economics. And when you have, and then the number four, legacy, passing that on. Wealth is passed on. Knowledge is passed on. Not three generations of welfare, public assistance, living in the hood, and that your greatest aspiration is to have your wifey, your 18, with your little kid, baby, and your mother's doing everything that you know that this is the greatest aspiration so right. you know so i'm i'm really heartbroken about that but i'm encouraged when i see guys like you stepping up because you know i look at it that at 67 68 not that i'm getting ready to kick the bucket so i'm that's not what i'm talking about right but i know what it is to be in my 30s 40s and 50s and be a leader right so I understand now that my job now is to come alongside people like you and encourage you to come alongside of you and give me my, and give you my contacts to come alongside of you 
and give you that push to come alongside of you and Mickey with Rocky, get out of here, wake up, you bum, what's wrong with you? So that's, you know, my role now is to pass on whatever I got and help the next uh, leaders, right? People like you, 40 and 50, 30, late 30, 40, 50, to do what? To go talk to the teenagers, the, 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 the teenagers, the 20-somethings, and say, you know, get your ass up and let's go. You know, that kind of thing. Well, they're calling me. I gotta get going, all right? God hey, it's been you. a pleasure. Bye-bye. All right, I'm coming. Please follow Angel R. Talk on Twitter and Instagram. Please like NYC Talking on Facebook. Please submit any questions, comments, or concerns through our social media channels. Thanks for listening.